Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. When it comes to listing your home for sale, everyone and their mom has advice. Oh, honey, who's going to want to buy this place on a cul-de-sac? It's literally a dead end. But for professional advice, a REMAX agent actually knows best. Let's start with a neighborhood analysis. I've been seeing lots of buyers looking to move here. REMAX is the most trusted name in real estate. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Based on 2022 BrandSpark American Trust Study. Each office independently owned and operated. Welcome to Pod Save America. I'm John Favreau. I'm John Lovett. I'm Tommy Vitor. On today's pod, Tommy talks with L.A. District Attorney candidate George Gascon about what progressive criminal justice reform looks like. Before that, we'll talk about what kind of progress on police reform might come from these protests, the establishment Republicans and military leaders who are abandoning Donald Trump, and how Friday's surprising jobs report might affect the 2020 campaign. But first, Lovett, how was the show this weekend? Made a very good love it or leave it. Talked to Osito Wenevu from the New Republic. Talked to DeRay. We talked about everything from defunding the police and the goals of defunding the police all the way to what police reforms can help right now. We listened to some protesters. um, Made fun of Leah Michelle one time. That's it. That's the show. (laughs) Okay, we'll take it. Uh, Also, if you haven't yet adopted a swing state through votesaveamerica.com, it's not too late. Uh, We are still in awe that more than 16,000 of you joined us live for the first training session last week. Tommy, you were one of the special guests. You want to say a word about that? I was. Um, I have to say, uh, you guys know me quite well. I'm uh, not a person who tends to emote. It was like one of the most overwhelming things to see 16,000 people spend an hour on a Thursday night to get trained to be a digital organizer because they care this much about the country in the midst of a pandemic, in the midst of the protests with all that's going on. Uh, It was incredible. Please come be a part of it. You will feel good uh, if you are involved in this election and you will feel good if you're trained and participating and there is a community of people who will be there with you in a time when we're also isolated. So check it out. It was incredible. I can't wait to do it again. Uh, I'll be the special guest at the training that we're having this Thursday, uh, which is all about storytelling for organizers. So uh, check it out. Hope to see you there. All right, let's get to the news. For the second weekend in a row, protesters took to the streets of big cities and small towns across America and around the world in a massive demonstration against police brutality and systemic racism. There are over 10,000 people in cities like Washington and Los Angeles. This weekend's protests were met with a much smaller and less militarized law enforcement presence. Curfews were lifted and wouldn't you know, there was less violence and chaos. Trump spent the weekend angrily tweeting from inside the giant wall he had built around the White House, downplaying the size of the protests and lobbing insults at Joe Biden, Barack Obama, D.C. Mayor Muriel Bowser, Bob Mueller, Colin Powell, and George Floyd, sharing a tweet which said the fact that he's been held up as a martyr is, quote, sickening. The next day, the White House said that the president may soon deliver a speech on race and unity. So uh, tune in for that. Um, I, uh, so let's put Trump aside for a second because I do want to start by focusing on the protesters and activists 
who've led this movement. Uh, in what ways do you guys think they've already succeeded? Tommy, when we start with you. Uh, okay, so I think they like. I think these protests have been overwhelmingly successful, and there's a bunch of different parts of that. So, I mean, a lot of people have woken up to the fact that uh, police violence and brutality is is rampant. You know, it's not just a few bad cops. It's not just a, a few bad police forces. I mean, you're seeing these videos of abuse from L.A. to New York to Buffalo, and it, it shocks the conscience. And I think that's woken a lot of folks up. You're also seeing protests everywhere. I mean, in 2014, it was focused on Ferguson. Um, you're not just seeing protests in, you know, majority African-American cities. You're seeing people protesting in like tiny towns all across the country. Uh, they are, you know, literally ubiquitous and public sentiment is on the right side. The Wall Street Journal found uh, that by two to one margin, voters are more troubled by police actions and killing George Floyd than they are about protest violence. And I think that's good because it's helping people dismiss bad faith arguments that pop up at these times, right? Like Colin Kaepernick's protest was pretty lonely. It was like him and a few others. But that discussion was quickly stolen from him and made about the anthem and disrespecting the flag or the U.S. military, despite the fact that the guy who told Kaepernick to kneel and not sit on the bench was a former Green Beret. It was like guidance from a service member. So this time it feels more focused. And then, you know, lastly, it's like I think the movement is broadening. Um, it is a multiracial, multi-generational protest movement. We're seeing Republicans like Mitt Romney was out there this weekend. The Republican district attorney in Franklin County, Pennsylvania, put out a statement saying Black Lives Matter. And he also said that he was specifically wrong to once reject that term and say all lives matter. So lawmakers moving. Mayor, Gar Mayor Garcetti here in L.A. announced a bunch of reforms. So it's been a, it's been a dramatic shift in a short period of time. Love it. I don't think I've seen a shift this dramatic and and quick in public opinion and public sentiment on any issue, maybe since sort of the gay marriage debate. I mean, just in, in the span of a couple weeks, seeing vast majority of Americans siding with protesters, supporting, a, a supporting Black Lives Matter, the Black Lives Matter movement, believing systemic racism and police brutality are serious, major problems, supporting major reforms to police departments. Um, what other successes have you seen? What, what, what have your thoughts been watching this over the weekend? Yeah, it is remarkable how quickly I think this has clarified um, the debate around police brutality, uh, police accountability and larger questions about systemic racism. It is true that there's been this sea change over the course of two weeks, but I do think it's worth saying that like this is a culmination of a movement that was slowly gaining mm. attention of Americans after each of these um, police killings that, that yeah, sort definitely. of uh, slowly over time began first with Black Lives Matter and now with this incredible outpouring uh, grow in part because uh, at each step, we've realized, you know, something that, you know, we've talked about on the show that 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 killings haven't decreased, that even some of these reforms haven't had the effect that they wanted them to, that sort of bigger systemic changes were needed. And I'll just say for me, like just watching it unfold, I, I think that there are things that you know, but in a lot of ways you don't internalize or they don't become central to how you think about politics. And, and I and what I found striking in just the past two weeks is how central the police are to conversations about a host of other issues, whether the police are the cause of or a symptom of these deeper problems, systemic racism, also our failure to take care of people with mental health and addiction issues, our failure to invest in schools and public parks and social welfare and social workers. And that what really is to me happening is 
we're having a very overdue conversation led by protesters who are sort of fed up because police violence and police brutality are the tip of the spear. Yeah, it's interesting. Listening to um, Pod Save the People last week, DeRay was saying that, you know, when he first started caring about this issue and working on this issue, a lot of people said to him, why are you picking sort of police brutality? Isn't that sort of a niche issue in the context of larger criminal justice reform? And he said, well, like, when people end up in jail, end up in prison, end up stuck in the criminal justice system, how do you think they get there? Right. An encounter with the police is almost always how someone enters the criminal justice system. And like so many movements, as you point out, love it. This was one that was started by a lot of activists and organizers who felt very lonely for a long time. And then there is a spark that makes it grow almost exponentially overnight. And now you see, you know, some of the big protests on Friday were about um, this. It would have been Breonna Taylor's 27th birthday. Um, and that was a case that when it happened, there were activists and organizers protesting, but it didn't sort of spark what we saw over the last couple of weeks. So these things build and build and build, and then suddenly something changes. Um, there was also a lot of, uh, I think, progress on the ground, tangible progress that we've seen um, over the last couple of weeks, you know, from, I'll go from sort of small to bigger, you know, there's Officers who've been caught using excessive force are getting suspended, fired, investigated, and charged faster than they've been in the past. Cities have banned police from using chokeholds, tear gas, and other types of excessive force. LA and New York have announced they'll be redirecting some funding from police departments to job programs, healthcare, and other social services. Um, Long-running movements to remove Confederate statues have finally forced action in places like Richmond, Virginia. Um, and then on Sunday, and we'll talk about this in a second, the Minneapolis City Council announced that they'll be disbanding their current police force and basically rebuilding it from scratch over the next year. We, we should also add, too, that I do think it's worth pointing out that it's because of protests uh, that charges were filed in the George Floyd case that uh, yeah. the Breonna Taylor case has been reopened. Uh, so there are clear signs that in really acute, directed ways, the protests are working while also starting this larger conversation around policy. Uh, so let's talk about what comes next. Uh, in Congress, uh, Democrats today introduced the Justice and Policing Act of 2020, which would require law enforcement agencies uh, to report data on the use of force, create a national registry to track police misconduct, ban chokeholds, and mandate bias training. Uh, these reforms mirror much of what Joe Biden laid out over the weekend in an L.A. Times op-ed. Uh, he also called for a police oversight commission in his first 100 days, ending the transfer of weapons of war to local police and a national use of force standard. Uh, many activists have long believed that to truly end police violence, uh, cities should consider defunding or disbanding their police forces altogether and replacing them with a new system of public safety, which, as we just mentioned, is exactly what a veto-proof majority of the Minneapolis City Council pledged to do on Sunday. Um, Trump has already tweeted several times about how Joe Biden and the radical left Democrats want to defund the police. Uh, and even though that Biden hasn't proposed defunding. And in fact, he came out against defunding the police in a statement through his spokesman today. Um, the Trump campaign and Republicans now want to use this as a wedge issue in the election. I kind of want to uh, take this in two different parts. Let's get to the politics in a second. Let's just talk about sort of the substance of uh, the argument around defunding or disbanding um, police forces. Tommy, you want to talk about that argument a little bit? Yeah, I mean, look, I, I think the conversation about defunding the police exists on a continuum and there's different versions uh, from different folks. And But like at its essence, I think we are talking about 
dramatically rethinking how we approach public safety and emergency response. So that means evaluating the jobs you ask police to do, whether that work is effective, whether it's not, and then reallocating funds accordingly. So some data points that are relevant, like the Washington Post over the weekend reported um, a study that shows that there's no significant correlation between changes in state and local police spending and overall or violent crime rates. So given that, it does seem to make a lot of sense to rethink spending. And then part of this conversation is that departments have proven to just be ineffective, right? I mean, you just mentioned Minneapolis. In 2019, Minneapolis police only cleared 56% of cases uh, where a person was killed. In 2018, their clearance rate for rape was just 22%. So this is a taxpayer-funded department that is not serving the community in any way. So should we talk about dramatically changing it? Um, the other thing I think people are talking a lot about is is the role of mental illness or disability and how those cases are responded to. So half of people killed by police have a disability or a mental health issue. Those calls should be answered by highly trained mental health professionals and not armed police. And then sort of more broadly, like if 5% of arrests in America are for violent crime, does it make sense for basically 100% of uh, responders who are police officers to be heavily armed? Probably not. And so that's a piece of it. Part of it is that I think for a lot of communities in this country, uh, they just believe that the institution of these police departments, they're just fundamentally broken. Like there's historians who, who compellingly argue that police forces were founded primarily to enforce racial segregation and not enforce laws. It was not about justice. And it is certainly true that for centuries in this country, African-Americans could not turn to the police for justice in, matter, in matters involving crimes committed by white people. In fact, they were often complicit in those crimes, the police were. And, and today, like the African-American community has a fundamentally different relationship with the police than most white Americans do, right? I mean, I don't think any of the three of us were sat down with, by our parents to have a talk about how to interact with police if we're pulled over, because it's not a thing that is really discussed in white communities. So I think there are activists who are thinking like, this is a fundamentally broken, flawed institution at its core. We should think about how we reconstitute it to deal with the problems that police are supposed to respond to, but in a way that's more effective. Love it. You guys talked about this on uh, on your show. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, look, I think that I think what Tommy said is right. You know, you step back and you say, all right, we closed asylums and mental hospitals because they were hellholes and mistreating people and abusive. Um, and we replaced it with basically nothing. We didn't, we didn't do anything to help people in the long run with mental illness. We didn't put the resources in it uh, that were necessary. So it became a police problem. Um, we have a rising uh, homeless problem across the country. We don't put the resources in it that are necessary. We, we respond with police. Um, the same about addiction and drug abuse. All the evidence is clear, right? That, that, if, that if someone has an addiction, if someone is struggling uh, with drugs, that treatment and not punishment is the answer for them. Not only is it more effective, it's less expensive, it's more humane, and we don't do that. We respond with police. Why? Because over the course of 30 years, in part because of uh, rising crime from the 60s into the 90s, in part because it was embraced not just by Republicans, but, but by Democrats, we shifted our resources towards police and we sort of sucked the resources away from social services and all the rest. And so what we're, we're in this situation where, I, where saying something that's obvious and true is seen as radical, right? Saying 
um, that we should reimagine what the police do. Saying defund the police is radical when actually when you dig into it, it's saying here's what here are the problems that police aren't solving. Here's what all the experts say we should do. Here's what our budgets actually look like. Can't we actually have an honest conversation about it? And it is seen as radical because these structures have been in place for so long because the hierarchies are so entrenched, whether it's uh, uh, political, uh, whether it's, um, you know, uh, in terms of our government and the role police play in budgets uh, and uh, in, in local politics. Um, and also in our culture, there is no law and order special housing unit, right? Our shows are about how tough and good cops are. Our shows are about how the police come in to solve all of our problems. And so uh, I think what's interesting is you have the conversation being set by these protest movements, calling for something that sounds radical. When you dig into the actual questions that they're raising, uh, the answers are actually not radical. They're honest and reflect the evidence. And what you will see over time, I think, is that these radical sounding solutions become more and more mainstream as democratic politicians don't necessarily embrace the phrase defund the police, but embrace the larger vision of reimagining the role of police and reimagining the relationship between people and their government. Yeah, I, I think before uh, you get into slogans, you have to step back and ask a couple larger questions, which is what is the purpose of law enforcement? What do we want from law enforcement, right? We want a police force that doesn't commit violence, but stops violence. You want a police force that gives every citizen in the community equal protection under the law. We do not have that right now. We have not had that for a long time. So you look at the story of the Minneapolis Police Department. They have had, um, they have tried a number of reforms with this city council, with this mayor. They have tried trainings for bias and de-escalation. They have a diverse police department. They have body cameras. They have community policing. Every time they have tried further reforms, <laughs> tried to redirect some proposed budget increases to fund a new office of violence prevention. Every time they've tried to do that, a lot of reforms have been blocked by the police department and their union. Uh, Steve Fletcher was one of the Minneapolis city council members. He was writing this in Time Magazine this week. Um, police chief, who they think is a good reformer, has fired officers only to have his decisions overturned and those officers reinstated by arbitration. Um, after they cut money from the police budget in Minneapolis, officers retaliated by not responding to 911 calls in certain wards of the Minneapolis City Council people who decided to vote to cut their budget. And so from the, from the perspective of the Minneapolis City Council, you think we've tried everything else and they feel the police department feels like they are unaccountable to the people they're supposed to serve. What else are we to do? but at least try to stop the power of the police union from blocking these reforms. And there is a model for this, right? In uh, Camden, New Jersey, which had the fifth highest murder rate in the nation, uh, in 2013, the police department was disbanded by the city. It was restructured as a county police department. Um, they actually had more officers at first uh, throughout the county, but they had lower paying benefits. They were trained to use handcuffs and handguns as a last resort. Uh, not only body cameras, but they had GPS tracking devices on them. There was community policing, stricter use of force rules. And since then, reports of excessive force have dropped 95%. And violent crime is also way down in Camden. So they get both. They had less excessive force and less crime. They showed it's possible. Now, I think the, 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 the tough part here is it is 
it is a very local issue because different cities and different police departments will need different reforms. So it's not like a one size fits all thing. And you hear the Minneapolis City Council saying this too. They're like, we don't know what replaces it yet. We have to have these conversations with the community. Right. Um, but at, at the very least, they're down that path. You know? But I do think like it's the impunity that you describe that has, I think, uh, led this country to erupt it several times, right? Like now it's it's watching George Floyd be murdered. And in 92, it was the cops who beat up Rodney King getting away with it. And when you step back and think about it, right, like Richard Nixon very famously said, well, when the president does it, that means it's not illegal. Trump has expressed similar sentiments. We all flip out about it. But that kind of impunity happens every day with police officers in a lot of communities. And like beyond, you know, the brutality we've seen in videos, like nothing about arresting someone requires you to beat the shit out of them and grind their face into the concrete and smash their limbs with a baton. But yet we're watching police in Buffalo shove a 75 year old man to the ground and do nothing as he starts to bleed out and then lie about what happened. Like if I can be charged with filing a false police report, where is the accountability when the park police brazenly lie to journalists about using tear gas on protesters. So I think part of this is like we give police so much leeway when it comes to using force and lethal force because it's a dangerous job. But uh, we need to fix that. We need to right size that because what we're seeing is is dramatic abuses of that power and people stepping up and saying this doesn't make sense. We should not tear gas citizens. We shouldn't shoot people with rubber bullets like we don't have to do that. It's making it worse. Yeah, I mean, I I do think to a lot of what we're seeing is this is the unaccountability. This is the aggressiveness that wasn't a bug, but a feature when this was put in place in many cases by a white majority uh, that didn't ever have to fear that this would come for them. What we are seeing is that aggressiveness, that brutality taken as a part of the job, that that is what it means for police to do their job, in part because of so long a culture, a culture that basically rewarded rewarded uh, politicians, rewarded police chiefs, rewarded cities that invested in police and largely looked the other way. You know, Keith Ellison talked about this uh, this morning on What a Day. He talked about the fact that um, it's not just that the rules meant that police weren't accountable. It meant there were also juries, grand juries, ordinary citizens who have been trained to just defer to the police, assume the police are telling the truth. But what we have seen, as Tommy pointed out over the past two weeks, is just how often that is irresponsible, just how often police are lying, even when caught on camera. And I think that that is shocking to a lot of people, uh, myself included, who haven't always been paying attention. All right. So let's talk about the politics of this. Uh, We just spoke about sort of the rapid shift in public opinion in favor of protesters, in favor of Black Lives Matter, in favor of systemic police reforms. No one so far has polled defund the police or polled uh, abolish the police. But um, YouGov uh, from last weekend decided to poll, do you do you favor various police reforms? And, you know, banning chokeholds, body cameras, training to de-escalate conflicts all got like 70, 80, 90 percent, uh, hugely popular. Then they said, do you support cutting funding to police departments? So just cutting funding. Um, Only 16% of all voters said they support any cuts in funding for police departments. That includes 16% of Democrats, 21% of 18 to 29-year-olds, and 33% of Black Americans. So 
you know, I think for those of us who have been paying close attention to the protests, who've been reading a lot of these very thoughtful pieces about police reform uh, over the last weeks, I think what we're saying, you know, it, it makes sense. You can, you can see why police need such sweeping reform. Of course, for a lot of Americans, and of course these numbers may change and probably will change, I imagine, over the coming weeks, um, but they're still pretty low. And you saw Biden come out today and say, you know, he's not for defunding the police. And so far, no, a lot of elected Democrats, I saw Cory Booker, Karen Bass, a lot of the people who worked on this, um, Hakeem Jeffries, a lot of people who worked on the bill that they co-sponsored, the bill that they introduced today, also said that they they don't support defunding the police. Um, and, you know, Republicans are out there saying they're Trump and the Republicans are salivating about using this as a wedge issue against Democrats. Um, what, do, what do you think about the politics of this issue? Uh, Tommy. Well, I mean, look, I, I don't know yet. I mean, so look, there's sort of like a, a near term. Let's talk about the politics of success or failure. So in the near term, like there's a big piece of this that's about the budget, because all these cities are going to deal with huge shortfalls thanks to the coronavirus. And you're seeing everywhere that every component like agencies are getting gutted except for the police. Uh, and people are asking why, like, why are we gutting school budgets and not police funding? So in L.A., uh, in April, Mayor Garcetti had proposed furloughs for 15,000 city employees, but not for the police. In fact, he'd offered uh, to give them a 7% increase in spending for the LAPD. Since the protests have started, Garcetti has reversed course and said he will now direct $250 million to youth jobs, health initiatives, peace centers to heal trauma and help those who are dealing with discrimination. That will be partly funded by $150 million that was previously allocated to the LAPD. That is like head-snapping political change for Los Angeles. Because in 1993, after the Rodney King riots, L.A. elected a Republican mayor who promised to hire 3,000 more cops to bring the force up to 10,000 officers, which is about where it is now. And so that's remarkable progress. Like, that's political success no matter how you measure it. I do think that, like, broadly, there's going to be an inside game and an outside game where activists who are marching and protesting are going to have to keep pushing people like Joe Biden uh, to do more if they believe that's what's necessary. I also think there's a political imperative to more clearly define the policy and then tell a story about how that will make America like a better, safer world. Um, and so, you know, I don't think that we are immediately going to see Joe Biden say we should defund the police. But I do think like the amount of progress that's been made in even just the small amount of time since Ferguson in 2014 is incredible. And so th three years from now, we might be having an entirely different conversation. Love it. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I, police budgets were sacrosanct. They're not going to be sacrosanct anymore. This is going to be a big part of the political fight. And I think that that's a victory. Uh, you know, I, those remind me a bit of the debate around abolish ICE uh, in that uh, activists uh, and some candidates, but mostly activists embrace this term abolish ICE. Uh, Democrats don't embrace the term. Republicans try to tar Democrats with the term anyway. And all the while, the conversation led because of this uh, provocative and, you know, maximalist phrase leads to a debate about, well, what should these reforms look like? Well, it turns out, you know what, there are huge problems in ICE and huge reforms are needed. And maybe this department should be broken up in certain way and its functions uh, uh, devolve to other agencies so it doesn't have this noxious, toxic culture. 
Uh, so I, I see the same thing playing out with defund the police in that, you know, Kamala Harris, right? She's she and Cory Booker on the Senate side introduced this bill. She was asked by Meghan McCain this morning. Uh, the mayor of Minneapolis refused to say defund the police. I'm going to ask you the same question as protesters uh, did. Do you support defunding police? And she didn't answer it. Yes or no. She explained why we need to reimagine the role of police in our lives. And she gave a pretty cogent answer. I don't know if it will satisfy activists ultimately, but it is it is so clear how much the conversation from the streets has trickled down into a much more progressive vision for what is possible in governing. Yeah, two points for me on this. One, uh, very much agreeing with what Tommy said is I think sometimes we forget to separate the role of activists and politicians. You know, politicians will do what is broadly popular, or at least if it's not broadly popular, it's in the 40s, <laughs> in the high 40s, right? So like you would not expect... Joe Biden to come out for defunding the police or a lot of people who have to run in a purple state, a red state in competitive districts. Um, I, I listened to um, Ezra Klein interview Ta-Nehisi Coates on uh, his podcast this week, and everyone should go listen. It's a fascinating and fantastic conversation. And he said, like, yeah, I don't expect Joe Biden to say defund the police, but I really hope that the people around Joe Biden are reading all the thoughtful takes about defunding police so that energy and those ideas bleed into his policy making in some way. That's what you can hope. So then the question is, how do the activists tell a story about defunding the police that becomes broadly popular? Um, Anat Shankar Osorio, who uh, I had on The Wilderness, who's just an expert on messaging, you know, she was tweeting about this weekend and she said, sometimes we fall back on negative framing what we don't want and we forget to tell sort of the positive side of the story. And it's not just if we just talk about defunding the police and we don't talk about what we want to replace that with sort of the positive things we're looking for, we kind of fall short. Data for Progress, our friends at Data for Progress did a, did a poll over the weekend um, and they tested um, do, do you support or oppose a new agency of first responders like emergency medical services of firefighters to deal with issues related to addiction or mental illness that need to be remedied but do not need police? 68% of the people they asked support that kind of agency, which is the exact kind of agency that some of these cities like Camden and possibly Minneapolis might create to sort of supplement or to sort of shrink the role of traditional policing. So I do think it's, a, it, it's incumbent on activists and all of us who want to see major structural police reforms to tell a story and paint a very clear vision of a world where our tax dollars are not funding police violence, but funding public safety that is equitably distributed to everyone in the community. That, that, that's what I would suggest. PodSave America is brought to you by the Homegrown OKC podcast. There is way more to the Oklahoma City bombing than any of us knew. You can learn a ton about it on the podcast Homegrown OKC, hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. It unpacks the tragic Oklahoma City bombing and how the event still ripples today and calls for political violence. Just days after the Oklahoma City bombing in 1995, America discovered the perpetrator was a right-wing extremist, Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today, as seen in the January 6th attack on our capital. Each episode of the Homegrown OKC podcast follows the story of McVeigh, a decorated Army veteran who became consumed with rage, went underground, and built a bomb that killed 168 people. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about a better understanding of the political environment in our country today. I think this is such an important story that tells you so much about radicalization, 
the far right in this country, the things that were simmering under the surface long before January 6th and some of the origins, which dates back to the Oklahoma City bombing. Uh, it's an incredible podcast based on an amazing book. I highly recommend it. To listen to Homegrown OKC, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. So let's talk about how uh, Trump's response to the last few weeks is affecting his bid for re-election. New CNN poll out today finds Trump losing to Biden 55-41, uh, the biggest margin yet in Trump's lowest approval since the beginning of last year. Over the weekend, the New York Times reported that even some Republican Party leaders won't be voting for Trump in 2020, including their last two presidential nominees, Mitt Romney and George W. Bush. Times also reported that former Republican leaders like the former speakers Paul Ryan and John Boehner won't say how they'll vote. <laughs> and some Republicans who I know. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry, Dan. Dan isn't on this too. episode because I know he's going to have something to say. Uh, and some Republicans who are already disinclined to support Mr. Trump are weighing whether to go beyond backing a third party contender to openly endorse Mr. Biden. A number of military leaders who served in Republican administrations, including Trump's former defense secretary and chief of staff, have broken with the president in the last week. And over the weekend, former Secretary of State Colin Powell told Jake, Jake Tapper he'll be voting for Biden, saying this about Donald Trump. And so we're not a country of just a president. We have a Congress. We have a Supreme Court. But most of all, we have the people of the United States, the ones who vote, the ones who vote him in and the ones who vote him out. I couldn't vote for him in 96, and I certainly cannot in any way support President Trump this year. So, uh, yeah, I know you didn't vote for him in 2016. I, I assume, based on the fact that you approved uh, Joe Biden when uh, Senator, then Senator Obama picked him to be his running mate in 2008, I, I assume you're going to be voting for Joe Biden? I'm very close to Joe Biden on a social matter and on a political matter. I've worked with him for 35, 40 years, and he is now the candidate, and I will be voting for him. Tommy? Colin Powell is riding with Biden. Um, how, much, how much does any of this matter? And, and do you think some of these endorsements or anti-endorsements carry more weight than others? I mean, look, I think Paul Ryan uh, refusing to say who he'll vote for is just, it's, it's worthless. It's pathetic. It's chef's kiss, Paul Ryan. I, you know, I do think like George W. Bush, Mitt Romney, uh, that's significant. I think General Mattis's broadside against Trump Actually, it was pretty significant for a few reasons. I mean, first of all, like the D.C. pundit class reveres him like no other. So it got a ton of attention. It will continue to. I Second, I think it will move opinions within the military itself and give others uh, the courage to speak out. And, and that to me is what matters. Like uh, people in politics talk a lot about permission structures. If you see people who are in your party, who you respect, uh, who you may have voted for previously saying they can't go with Trump this time, they're going to go for Biden. I do think that helps you get permission internally to to switch parties as well for a vote. I do find myself quite frustrated in some cases that it took this long. I think Trump's response to Charlottesville told you everything you needed to know about how racist and divisive he is. And so reading uh, Mattis's comments uh, about Trump recently, I felt like they could have been written the day after Charlottesville. But we're about building coalitions. We're about peeling off soft <laughs> Trump voters. So this stuff could be incredibly meaningful on the margins. And I think you're seeing it in these polls. Like everyone listening should know, as much as you hate Donald Trump, 55% of the country voting for any one human being is unheard of. Jesus Christ himself probably couldn't crack 54. So like we're in a weird reality right now. It's going to shrink, but um, it's a big deal. Love it. What do you think? 
I wish Mattis would do it on television and stop doing it in the Atlantic. Like this is a culture that doesn't read, so that doesn't do as much for me. Like <laughs> that's what we were saying last week. Although the Lincoln Project this morning finally did a VO of his his Atlantic piece, I was like, we need a good voice over here. <laughs> and you know what? I'm glad Mitt Romney is out there uh, saying Black Lives Matter. Um, uh, it's worth remembering that we have one Republican saying Black Lives Matter. We have. Uh, many more uh, saying uh, uh, how how much Trump worries them in private. And then we have the vast majority standing behind him. Um, I would like to see Mitt Romney uh, not be so cute and write in Anne's name. You know, this is a choice. We have a choice. Do you want to be part of Do you want to help us make this choice or not? I'm not interested in Republicans who write in other people's name. It's a it's evading responsibility, uh, not taking responsibility. And so, like, I, I, I'm not going to give people points for doing less than the bare minimum of helping to remove Donald Trump because there's only one person that you can vote for to help remove Donald Trump. That said, I think it's a good thing. I am very reluctant to start saying something feels different. Something feels different. Is this the end? Is this the end? Uh, A, it's prognostication. It doesn't matter. We still have to all do our job. And B, we've seen versions of this in the past. And, and uh, you know, uh, it's never it hasn't been the end for Trump yet. He's not ended. And there have been many times where it seemed like the end was around the corner. Uh, we can remove him in November. Uh, these, are, I think, are good and hopeful signs. And I just want to know that this wasn't a nadir and a low point from which Trump slowly crawled back and actually the beginning of the actual end. Yeah, I think I think good for Mitt Romney, you know, and it doesn't we were talking about this earlier. It doesn't like negate all the bad positions Romney has taken throughout the course of his life or all the things he said that we've disagreed with over the course of his life. Like you, people can change, they can grow, and then sometimes they can do things that are bad and sometimes they can do things that are good. Like, I, you know, there's like a raging debate about this. I don't think it's that complicated to me. Um, I give Mitt Romney a little extra credit because he is the one Republican who voted to impeach the president mm-hmm. when he had a chance. So he actually took an action um, that 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 meant something as well. I do agree, love it that the writing in the third party or writing in the name thing, you know, it. I, I get why they they're they're doing it, but like, what we're trying we're trying to send a signal to voters, um, many of whom in 2016 may have helped cost Hillary the election by either leaving the presidential thing blank on their ballot voting for a third party, whether it was, you know, the Greens or whether it was the Libertarians or whatever. Um, and we want every we want to send the message to everyone that if you want Donald Trump out of office, it is a choice between two people. And so to the extent that leaders let everyone know that it's a choice between two people, I think that's important. Um, you know, I, I'm with Tommy that it's all about a permission structure. I think there's two kinds of swing voters in this election. There's There's people who are like, you get a lot of college-educated white males um, who, uh, you know, I, I, they voted for Trump in 16. A lot of them voted for Gretchen Whitmer in Michigan in, in 18 or Tony Evers in Wisconsin in 18. And they're still not sure if they're going to do it, vote for Joe Biden. And I think for those voters, seeing military leaders, seeing Republicans say it's OK to vote for Joe Biden could actually have an influence. Um, there's a whole bunch of other voters who don't know if they're going to participate in the political process at all because they think institutions have fucked them over for their whole lives and they don't trust them. I don't think George W. Bush or Mitt Romney is going to mean much to them. This is not for them. <laughs> but this is not a, for but them. Not ev- but not everyone's the same. Not all swing voters have the same beliefs and values. Not all swing voters are going to be motivated by the same thing. Yeah, look, I, I think Mitt Romney deserves credit for 
marching. I think he deserves credit for voting for impeachment. It's also just worth remembering that Mitt Romney's dad, George Romney, marched in favor of civil rights in, in the late 60s. Nixon tapped George Romney to uh, run HUD and basically drove him out of the administration because George Romney uh, refused to stop enforcing fair housing laws. So, you know, I, I think he has a history of this kind of activism in his family. It doesn't mean I regret kicking his ass in the 2012 election. I find all this chatter on Twitter that he was horribly mistreated to be a touch overstated. It was a presidential campaign. Uh, but uh, look, yeah, I don't remember. I don't remember the Romney campaign. I don't remember the Romney campaign putting on a pair of white gloves uh, yeah. and showing up at the boxing match. You know, yeah. I, it was a it was a fight. There was I, a political fight. Yeah, I remember. Uh, yeah, I remember sitting in my office uh, in the NSC and, and reading a blistering press release from the the Romney campaign on the night of the Benghazi attacks. You know, or you know, as as there's still like massive protests outside of embassies and feeling like that was a touch uh, outrageous. But here we are. I want to focus on the current and good for him for for these votes. <laughs> I don't. I'm ready. To, also, I want to fight old wounds. <laughs> That's what I want to do. It's just worth noting, as one of you just did, about like the weird, weird times we're in politically, that like we may go forward in November with a coalition that includes Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Bernie Sanders and George W. Bush and Mitt Romney. Like, what the fuck is happening right now? That is a big, rowdy, very diverse, crazily weird coalition of people who are going to be voting in the election. I'm just going to say this, too. All right, right here, right now. All right, George W. Bush maybe he maybe puts out an ad saying he supports Joe Biden, and we don't say we don't say much about it. All right, the day after that election, we're back to saying fuck George W. Bush. But just <laughs> I'm not doing it now. But fuck George W. Bush. Just between us, I'm saying it really quiet, really quiet. But fuck him. I like this is a very weird political moment. <laughs> Obviously, as you said, John. My only hope for an admonition for folks is like. Let's all just have a little grace for each other in terms of uh, what we choose to believe in and how we all choose to conduct activism. You're allowed to believe what you believe. You're allowed to fight for progress and change how you want to do it. Everyone chill the fuck out with with browbeating people uh, who 99% agree with you. Like, I, I don't know. I think like we could train our energies towards a cause. And even if, even if you don't want to be graceful, like Tommy uh, so nicely suggests, just from a raw political standpoint, you know, movements are built by addition. <laughs> just to welcome people in. That's how you fucking win. Can I make one other one other observation just about about Biden, too? Do you remember the episode and how there's now everyone from, you know, as you said, George W. Bush to AOC? There's, do you remember the Seinfeld where Elaine and Jerry want to get with a couple that just broke up? There's a couple. They're both attracted to the members yeah, yeah, of the yeah. couple. And uh, they're both attracted to the members of the couple. And they basically like, here's our plan. First, we're going to be there for you. And then we're just there. I was, I was, I was looking for the connection back to this. Biden's there for us. <laughs> and then he's just going to be there. That's that's the that's how you build this giant coalition from 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 basically all ends of the political spectrum. First, he's just there for us. Then he's there. And that's how you know that that segment is over. <laughs> all right. <laughs> so we've talked we've talked before about how the one political strength that's keeping Trump in the race is that voters tend to trust him over Biden on managing the economy. 
president clearly thought he could build on this advantage last Friday when we received a better than expected jobs report. Economists had predicted unemployment would rise to 20% in May, but instead it fell to 13.3% and we added 2.5 million jobs. During a speech in the Rose Garden, Trump celebrated this news and said the following. Hopefully George is looking down right now and saying there's a great thing that's happening for our country. There's a great day for him. It's a great day for everybody. This is a great day for everybody. This is a great, great day in terms of equality. That fucking guy, man. Um, <laughs> let's, let, let's start with the numbers themselves. Um, Tommy, what are economists saying about why they were better than expected? So, John, I just want our readers to know that we don't have readers, listeners, to know that I barely understand this. People are talking about how there was a, mis- <laughs> there was a misclassification error in uh, the BLS data, which means the unemployment rate would have been about 3% higher, so about 16.3%. Uh, some people who are classified as temporarily unemployed were misclassified as absent, like you would be on, say, jury duty. I don't really care about fighting about that. I, I was a big, it was a big Twitter dust up on Friday that I did my best to mute. But I do think like big picture, like people are still suffering a lot. Uh, I think the Republican Party is going to create massive problems for itself if they use this job report as an excuse for not doing more to help people who are hurting as a result of the pandemic. So that's kind of like the Democratic eye on the prize here um, versus, you know, unskew the BLS or whatever the debate was on Friday. Yeah, love it. You know, controversial out there political opinion. You tell me what you think. (laughs) You shouldn't celebrate. You shouldn't celebrate double digit unemployment. (laughs) No, I, you know, look, I. I remember, John, you remember years in the yeah. White House, years, you and years, me, man. years, you and me. years, any good jobs report, you had to go and get a chain and you had to make sure that you hit yourself back on the back five times, 10 times that to make sure you understood inside of the speech that even though you were pointing to progress on the economy, how hard things were for many people. And I'm I'm being glib about it, but it was taken as an article of faith, backed up by polling, backed up by evidence that that Barack Obama, President Barack Obama, did not want to be out there celebrating these numbers, which were far lower and better than the current numbers Trump is celebrating, for fear that it would seem out of touch and unable to relate to the real pain that people are feeling, in part because anytime Barack Obama said anything approaching uh, what Donald Trump has been saying, he would have been pilloried. He would have been mocked mercilessly by Republicans claiming he was out of touch. So uh, I am a, I continue to believe that that is good politics and that, you know, Larry Kudlow in his fucking... <laughs> Uh, 19, oh, we have a clip. Oh, play, play the clip. <laughs> this is how Larry Kudlow um, uh, responded to the news. America is coming back. Three million new jobs, lower unemployment rate, furloughed, temporary layoffs, going back to work, green shoots popping up everywhere, stocks are soaring, POTUS policies are working. Stay with the winners, Trump and Pence and me. The best is yet to come. <laughs> wow. It's just, it's, um, it's hard for you to hear. It's hard for you to hear in the audio, Me. but the, but the pinstripes on his suit are made of cocaine. The, <laughs> look, the, the Kudlow, a green room creature in his, you know, <laughs> wide lapeled shirt and jacket out there saying that everything is okay, um, uh, it's you know it's preposterous and 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 this little debate about whether the unemployment rate is thirteen percent or sixteen percent like these are some of the worst jobs numbers 
in history, in a century. There's yeah. no getting around it. There's no talking their way out of it. They can't get past it. Look, the, the flip side of your point, the flip side of my original point is that Trump taught me that economic sentiment and how you feel about the economy is totally partisan, right? I mean, like the economy had barely changed. Donald Trump becomes president and suddenly a bunch of Republicans feel great about the economy because Trump is now in charge. So that irrationality behind that voter sentiment was surprising to me. Maybe that was naive. Maybe I'm an idiot. Maybe I'm going to get well actually off of all social media. But like that was shocking to me because you guys are right. We we like love it said like every Barack Obama statement uh, was as hedged and measured as possible about a good jobs report, in part because the underlying data suggested that people still weren't feeling things being better in their own lives. I'll just add one small point, which is Tommy's right that there is partisanship in terms of how the economy is viewed, but it actually isn't total. There's data on this and it shows that uh, when your party is in charge, you are more likely to say the economy is doing well. Right. Uh, that's true of Democrats and Republicans. It is just more true of Republicans uh, that they are more yeah. likely to take yep. a partisan view, but it's not total. Uh, right. Reality still exists. That's all. <laughs> So, yeah, no, I, I I completely agree. I think that polarization now, because it's so extreme, takes care of about 90 percent of what what Tommy's talking about. I think there were always this segment of voters and we saw this popping up in our own polling and other people's polls that like the only thing that's keeping Trump alive is people who disapprove of his job as president, but they think he's good on the economy and they might approve in the economy. So I think for those people, you know, you need to message the right way, message this the right way. What would have made me nervous from a political standpoint is if Trump came out, I can't really imagine him doing this, but said like, look, this is better than expected, but we have so much more work to do to bring this economy back. And I'm going to be fighting for a new package in Congress and all this kind of stuff. That would have made me nervous because it would have looked like he's fighting for people. Instead, it was a big fucking celebration. Republicans in Congress are like, all right, now we can pump the brakes on the next stimulus package. Trump is like, oh, I'm going to ask for more, but I'm going to ask for a payroll tax cut, which no one really wants. And I think it is what he did right there was it was a huge political opportunity for Democrats because basically Trump has now decided he is running as the candidate of the status quo in an election where like record numbers of people think the country is on the wrong track. The virus is gone. The economy's back. Nothing's wrong. There's no social unrest or racial. Everything is fine. The great American comeback has begun. You know, keep America great, which I guess now, according to the Washington Post, they might ditch that slogan. They might need yeah. a new slogan because yeah. America doesn't so, seem that great to anyone right they're now. They're buying whiteboards by the bulk over at the White House. <laughs> <laughs> So, like, I think that is a huge risk for him. He was he got to run as a change candidate in 2016. And now he's running as the candidate of the status quo by, like, celebrating this. And I don't know. Look, he can try. You know, he's going to try to say already that, like, Joe Biden's been in Washington forever and he's ineffective. And, you know, he could get some traction with that message. But it's in Trump to celebrate everything and say everything is fine all the time. It's not in Trump to say like things are bad and I'm going to fix it while he's the president. No, he's incapable. Um, and I think that's a real danger. Yeah. It's yeah, he's incapable. So he said that George fucking Floyd, it liked the jobs oh, yeah. numbers. We just went right by it. The man yeah. is incapable of expressing any other emotion uh, than celebration of himself. That's it. That's all he's got. He is without empathy. The job has done what it has done to every American president, which is take their worst qualities and make them worse. And that's what we've got. And we've that's that it was just it's been on display. That's all. That is correct. OK, when we come back. 
we'll have Tommy's interview with L.A. District Attorney candidate George Gascon. The National Women's Soccer League kicks off March 16th on ION. Out in front to Williams. It's a new Saturday night destination featuring the best players in the world. See the full schedule and find where to watch at IONNWSL.com. George Gascon is a candidate for district attorney here in Los Angeles. He's also a, a former DA in San Francisco and our guest today on Pod Save America. George, thank you so much for joining the show. Hey, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Uh, so just right at the top here, uh, full disclosure for listeners, I have donated to your campaign, so I am hardly impartial, but I don't think they look to me for that. So anyway, thought I should say it. So, uh, George, like a, a lot of our, our audience is in L.A., but you know most of them are not. So I was hoping we could start with some basics about the job itself. What decisions does a district attorney make? And in particular, for for listeners that are you know, horrified by videos of police brutality, what actions could you take if you're elected to address that problem and to stop that violence? Of course. I mean, the first thing that you can do is uh, ensure that you're taking a, a, a transparent and unbiased look at police behavior when there is criminal conduct by police that you're going to hold them accountable and you're going to prosecute. And that's really important. Uh, I think looking the other way, as the current district attorney has done, very often emboldens police. And I think the problem that we have nationally is that prosecutors generally, uh, for a variety of reasons, including pressure from police unions and the difficulty of taking, you know, making cases against the police, are often not taking, uh, they're not being assertive. And I think that we have created a culture in policing in this country where police use force because they can, not because they should. Um, And they can because, you know, prosecutors are often not holding them accountable. The second thing that you have to do is you also modify behavior in policing by the way you prosecute your cases. So, for instance, I have uh, been very outspoken about what I think is the overly broad uh, curfews that have been imposed around L.A. County. Uh, And then the use of the curfew as a tool to go out and arrest and, you know, quite frankly, sometimes use force against peaceful demonstrators. Um, the DA should make it very clear that none of those cases will be prosecuted. And if you make that unequivocally clear, that also sends a message to the police. If you're going to do that, you're going to be standing alone uh, because we're not going to support you. Obviously, if you have somebody committing other crimes, they're, they're harming other people, they're burning buildings down, they're looting. That's a different story. Uh, and then you have to use proportionality and you have to evaluate each case on their own. But I think when you're talking about Peaceful demonstrators, which we have seen throughout the nation and certainly right here in L.A. County, being, uh, you know, having force being used upon them, uh, having put into plastic handcuffs, having been held in what I consider extremely dangerous conditions given the pandemic that we have, exposing hundreds, if not thousands of people to what potentially could be the death penalty for either them or someone else. Uh, I think that that has to stop. And the way to stop that is simply by the prosecutor come out very openly, unequivocally, and saying, I will not prosecute these cases under any condition. Unfortunately, our prosecutor hasn't done that. And that continues to you know, be a problem. Yeah. Um, so for listeners, I mean, you came up in this system as a beat cop. So you have real on-the-ground experience policing communities. 
I've also heard you talk about how growing up, your parents were terrified of the police. You said one time that, you know, if there was a, a cop behind your mom when she was driving, she might pull over or ask your father to pull over. So, you know, you viewed this from different perspectives. There are some people, uh, particularly communities of color, who feel like the systemic problems with the police go so deep that the forces should be defunded or disbanded and we should essentially start over. Do you agree with those calls to defund or disband police departments? You, you know, I, I agree with the anger that is driving this. And I often tell people that if we were redesigning our entire criminal justice system from the ground up, um, police departments would not look the way they look today. So to that end, I think that we need to start uh, shifting funding away from the traditional policing and putting more money in services that I believe actually not only increase community safety, but actually create a more sustainable community. So mental health services, intervention workers, both gang intervention workers, social workers. There are so many calls that police are required to respond on a regular basis that we would be much better off if we took the gun and the bash away and we had a medical professional or a social professional responding to those calls. Additionally, creating a vehicle to divert people even before they get into the system and giving them the medical assistance and social assistance that they need is likely actually to not only increase public safety, uh, but reduce a lot of the, the, the needs for funding that we have today that go unmet because we can reduce the footprint of jails and criminal justice system and put that money into other services that are more likely to create a much better community. So to the end that I have said for actually before all this, the need to, as we reduce the footprint of the criminal justice system, that money needs to be shifted into mental health services, social services, education, and other services that are likely to create a more sustainable, a safer community. We need to start doing this. Quite frankly, I used to say that six months ago, got no traction at all. Right now, we're talking about people wanting to completely defund the police department. I don't think we can afford to completely defund the police department, but we can certainly begin to start taking a lot of money away and putting that money into the services that are going to be uh, much more sustainable and a much better fit for what we need. So to that end, do you support Mayor Garcetti's proposal to direct $250 million towards youth jobs, health, uh, these peace centers? And, and partially fund it by cutting $150 million from the LAPD budget. Does that make sense? That makes sense. I think it's actually extremely uh, conservative. I think that the, the, LA, the, AP, the LAPD budget could take even a bigger cut. Look, the mayor just gave the LAPD about a 7% uh, bump uh, that he was going to keep. So really what we're talking about, by, by taking this money away, it still keeps LAPD at the funding levels that they were a few months ago, right, pre-fiscal year 2021. In LA, the fiscal year is uh, July to June 30th. So quite frankly, what I see given back or taken away, it's almost token because it really doesn't alter the operations at all. All it's doing is taking pay raises away, uh, which I don't think that we should have gone forward with given that every other city worker uh, was asked to take a 10% cut. So. I think we have to go deeper than what is being proposed. I think that we need to start moving away from being fearful that as we uh, start shifting funding away somehow, um, you know, we're going to be less safe. The reality is we're not. Uh, I think, uh, you know, we, we have to really start pushing back on police union political pressure. I mean, you still see it 
um, in the last few days, maybe not as openly, but there's so much pressure that goes by unions to make sure that, you know, funding is going to continue the same levels. And if not, the world's going to fall apart. Guess what? The world is not going to fall apart. And in fact, we were probably going to be a better world if we start shifting some of that funding to the services the mayor is talking about now. So to that end, like th- this show is probably listened to by a bunch of political junkies or people who are trying to influence people, you know, as organizers. How do they fight back on those arguments? The, the people who say, oh, you cut $150 million from the LAPD budget. There's going to be fewer cops on the street. There's going to be higher crime. I mean, even just the increased scrutiny of police activity after 2014 had people blaming crime on the Ferguson effect and claiming that cops were being handcuffed uh, and that may have led to an increase in crime. Like, How do you combat those arguments? Look, I think that there's two ways that we can back that argument. Number one is, in the case of L.A., really taking that fund away is just simply keeping the status quo. There's not any less officer. It's just simply not giving the officer a pay raise, which I'm not sure that given the economic scenario where, you know, everybody else is taking significant deep cuts that we should give a, a pay raise to the police department. The police department needs to be part of our community. And you know what, you're a public servant, and I think that you have to adjust to the realities. And the reality right now is that we're all, uh, you know, uh, suffering, and, you know, that suffering should be uh, across the board. The next thing that we have to do is that we really actually have to reduce this, the presence of policing in many communities. I think actually over-policing in many communities creates more problems than not. Look, I saw demonstrations in the last few days that actually became violent when the police showed up. They were peaceful until until there was police presence. So evaluate, and, and, and you know, we need professional police police officers and managers that understand that. Sometimes your presence actually is going to raise the, uh, the anxiety, and maybe it's, you're better, especially given the context of the current situation, sometimes it's better just to back off a little, and if you're going to approach, do it in a way that is not, with you know, with all the riot gear and all the stuff, all the things that actually increase tensions do not reduce tensions. So I, at the same time, you know, we got to make sure that you know, if police goes into a work slowdown, you know, they they work for us, right? And they work for mayors and city councils and, and boards of supervisors. And if you see that there is a a decrease of desirable policing levels, then you start holding them accountable accordingly. You know, it's not you know, policing should not be in a vacuum. It would be like having the armed forces being a vacuum, you know, without Congress and without the president, you know, no, no uh, reference to the current occupant of the White House, that is an anomaly. But, you know, just in general, we want police forces, we want the military to respond to civilian authority and that so sometimes we're losing that and we get intimidated and we're actually being uh, coerced into allowing police to do whatever they want to do. So um, in preparing for this interview, I talked to someone who was a critic of yours in San Francisco, who argued that your office sort of essentially gave up on prosecuting crimes like car break-ins or or low-level drug offenses, and that led to a poorer quality of life for residents of San Francisco. What do you say to that critic, and and how – you know, bigger picture, do you balance these long-term needed reforms with the immediate-term demands from residents to stop theft, for example? Yeah, and you know, look, that, that, that's the police narrative. Here's what happened in San Francisco. I, I was one of the co-sponsors of Prop 47, which uh, was one of the major criminal justice reform efforts 
dealing with the war on drugs, right? And really brought some sanity to uh, reducing some of the felony consequences for, for drug possession, for personal use, and wound up putting hundreds of millions of dollars, over 500 millions of dollars back into our communities. Police departments were against this, and they basically, in many places, went into a work slowdown. San Francisco really went into a work slowdown. And here's where I'm going with this. Car burglaries were not covered by Prop 47. But during the next four years after Prop 47, or three and a half years, until the new chief of police came up, there were, over, there were about 81,000 car break-ins, and there were 11 arrests. Which, by the way, all 11 arrests were filed on and were prosecuted. But when you have 81,000 cases and 11 arrests, it's not the failure to prosecute. It's the failure for the police to do their work but they were very good at shifting the, the narrative and saying that the DA was not prosecuting these cases or they were now misdemeanors, so we had less of a tool, which neither one was true. Not only were we prosecuting the very few cases, 11 of them that came up, but more importantly, when the new chief of police came on board and he said, you know, we're going to do our work, we saw immediately a 17% reduction in property crimes, including car break-ins. And now we, when I left, we had two years on the road of reductions. So that narrative is precisely the narrative that the police wants people to hear is the fear mongering and is sometimes the manipulation of things by, you know, just simply getting into a work slowdown. Unfortunately, in San Francisco, like in many other communities, there's not a strong enough leadership in, in, in county or city government to look at the police and say, wait a minute, 81,000 cases, 11 arrests, you're not doing your job. And if you don't do your job, I'm going to start taking action, right? You have the, the purse strings. You control who the chief of police is. They work for you. They work for us, right? It should not be the other way around. But it's very hard to push back in that narrative because people just buy it. You know, a cop shows up to the scene. Mm -hmm. Look, I mean, in 2014, the uh, Police Officer Association in San Francisco laid out somewhere around $400,000 in radio ads right after Prop 47. And the radio ad, I'm not quoting it exactly, but I'm going to paraphrase it. And basically, it was every morning, morning drive, if your car gets broken into or if you're a victim of a crime, call San Francisco police. We will be there to serve you. But don't expect District Attorney Gascon to do anything about it. And then they went out for about three and a half years to go into a work slowdown. Yeah. So it seems very, it seems like a very purposeful uh, stoppage there. Absolutely. Got it. Um, so I, I want to switch gears a little bit because, you know, there's so many important issues that, you sure. know, you're, the, the role would cover and that you've worked on. Uh, the United States has 5%, I think, of the global population, but 25% of the prison population. Clearly, that is a problem. What kinds of policies do you want to put in place to reduce mass incarceration and, and reduce uh, the insane number of people we have locked up in jails right now? Yeah, look, when I became the district attorney, our jail was, uh, in 2011, our jail was full every day. And within a year, we were able to lower our jail population by 30 to 40% on a daily basis. And crime did not go up. By the way, violent crime in San Francisco continued to go down through this entire period, whereas in LA County went up by 30% uh, in the county, 50% in the city, with a DA that incarcerates at rates that are 70% higher than anybody else in the state. We also had the lowest number of prison commitments. In fact, we had in 2015, 2016, there was a group of researchers that came to San Francisco and said, if every county in America took the same steps that San Francisco did, we would end mass incarceration in this country in a year's time. 
So what you have to do is we have to begin to move away from using incarceration as a first level of response to any problem. It's starting with pretrial detention at our jails, which in the case of LA County, about 50% of the people are in pretrial detention. By the way, San Francisco too, even the numbers were a lot lower and we were able to decarcerate. We still had a problem because we still go to Monty Vale and many other reasons that people are held, even if before the DA takes a look at it, you know, the DA has 48 hours, so people are in jail for 48 hours before the DA may take a look at it. So that population in the thought process, the people that are committing non-serious, non-violent offenses have to be booked and have to be kept in jail, either because they cannot afford bail or because they, they don't have an attorney that comes out right away. We need to stop that. The next thing that we have to do, which I have pledged to absolutely do in LA, and we started to do that in San Francisco, you know, as I uh, continue my journey understanding the work, is we have to go back to what we used to do before this craziness of about three decades ago that we kept adding more enhancements and more prison enhancements and punishment to the point that you can have a person that commits a crime and the base offense may be, let's say five years, but because of gang enhancements and other enhancements, they may end up in prison 15 or 20 years. And we often see now, as LA is a perfect example, where people are being placed on the gang files and the officers are fraudulently putting people, young people of color, in gang files, which then create the, the vehicle for the gang enhancement, which automatically multiplies a sentence if there were to be a sentence. So we have to move away from what we call status enhancements because that is driving incarceration in this country and California led the way with three strikes and you know gang enhancements and you know felon with a gun and just all kinds of things that they're applied often by prosecutors first of all to coerce a plea agreement the plea always being a sentence that will be so much less if it weren't for the enhancements or people go to trial and they end up, you know, running a risk of going from the potential of a, you know, low period of incarceration to going to prison for 25, 20, 25, 30 years. We have to yeah. move away from that. Um, uh, last question that's sort of related, which is you oppose the death penalty. I was hoping you could explain why. And then, you know, obviously the death penalty is the most severe example of the use of force by the state. But I think a lot of people have been shocked by the fact that police have been tear gassing, pepper spraying, shooting with rubber bullets, citizens. I mean, do you think those tools are appropriate for crowd control? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. And I have, I tell you, that I was brokenhearted seeing uh, some of the, the images that we have seen in TVs and the internet, uh, you know, uh, rubber bullets, which, you know, they, they, the business are called, uh, you know, foam uh, rubber baton rounds. First of all, they're not intended to be shot directly at anyone and in the upper torso area, which I saw a lot of that. They, they are meant to be skipped on the ground so that they, they hit the ground first to lose some of the momentum, and then they're supposed to hopefully hit in the lower, uh, you, know, the, you know, below the waist. We have seen contrary to that. They're never intended to be for peaceful demonstrators. They're not a crowd control moving tool, just like a baton should not be a crowd control moving tool. Or, or tear gas. So things are really when you have you have exhausted all the other possibilities and you have actual violence going on. And we have seen those tools 
use not in the in those scenarios and that to me is very problematic and i think that we need to hold people accountable for that but going to the death penalty which you asked earlier why am i opposed to the death penalty i'm going to tell you my personal reason but then i'm going to give give you a whole host of reasons why we should all be opposed i am opposed to the death penalty because i think it's immoral right now it's immoral why because it's being disproportionately applied poor people and people of color let's take la county LA County, the state of California has the biggest death road in the country, roughly 750 people. About a third of those come from LA County. Under the current district attorney, 22 people just in the last eight years have been placed in death row, and all but one are people of color. You cannot tell me that in a county of 10 and a half million people, where the African American population is less than 5%, but they make up the majority of the people in death row. So there's a problem with proportionality and the morality of that. Number two, it doesn't help public safety. It doesn't deter crime. When people are committing a crime that allegedly could be worthy of the death penalty under the current law, they're not thinking, if I get caught, I may be facing death row. That's not how we as human beings work. First of all, it's too remote. There's too many things. You're just not thinking of that. So it's not a deterrent. It's immoral and disproportionately apply. And then I'm going to go to the third major reason. It is so expensive. You know, it costs, an execution in the state of California currently would cost around $340 million to execute one person. It's crazy. People, yeah, it is crazy. People in death road, the cost of keeping people in death row is so many more times that if you put people in the regular within the regular population, most of the people in death row, by the way, about 50% went in with a mental health problem, which is also brings other ethical considerations. So we have someone that may have committed a serious crime. I'm not assuming that they did, right? But they're mentally ill, right? And I forget one other thing that I should have mentioned at the very beginning, which brings to the power of immorality. We don't always get it right. We right. know that people get wrongfully convicted. And the death penalty is irreversible. So if we convict someone to death row, and we know that there have been innocent people in this country have been executed. We have had people in the state that have gotten out of death row that were wrongfully convicted. And 20 years, 30 years later, they have been able to finally gain their freedom. So you got an issue of proportionality, you got an issue of wrongful convictions and the potential for an innocent person to be executed, which go to the morality of this. You got an issue of it doesn't serve any public safety purpose, it doesn't deter crime, and then it's so expensive. We can buy so much more public safety and so many other things with a penalty that doesn't have any applicability, in, in my opinion, in modern society. Yeah. I mean, I, I think I saw, might have been on your website, that California has spent more than $5 billion with a B since yep. 1978 prosecuting death penalty cases right. and maintaining a death row that currently houses 737 inmates. Yep. What the fuck are we doing? Excuse my language. Uh, it's no, insane. no, listen. <laughs> it, 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 you know what? I, I generally wouldn't say this in the air, but yeah, what the fuck are we doing? It's a good question because it doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Um, 
Last question. So there's a lot of people uh, who have been marching, who have been donating, who care deeply about criminal justice reform, who care deeply about reducing mass incarceration. How can they get involved in your campaign uh, if they're in this area and help you out? And are there other people running for, for DA seats across the country that they should check out if they want a more progressive policies implemented everywhere? Totally. So as to my campaign, you can go on our website, georgegascon.org, and you can see their volunteering opportunities, their policy papers that you can read up, uh, uh, their uh, you know, statements that you can use if you yourself wanted to go out and talk to people as to why you're supporting this, um, their volunteer opportunities. Um, as to other DAs, there, there are. You know, there is, uh, there is Kim Gardner in St. Louis, there is Marilyn Mosby in uh, Baltimore. There are many others. There are approximately, I believe there are 10 of us right now. They're running countrywide, uh, all deserving of attention, especially if it's close to the place where you live. But even if, even, you know, as, as Senator Bernie Sanders says, you know, give it, the, just donate $10, $1 each. If we get, you know, several million people that did $1 each to all of us, it would certainly go a long way because we're all facing the same things. We're facing police unions coming after you. In my case, during the primary, local police unions put $2.1 million against me. They have pledged, wow. yeah, they have pledged now for the general election to put between four and five million dollars against me, right? Wow. So in a market like LA, by the way, which is the largest county in the country, 10 and a half million people, fighting that kind of money in order to communicate is going to take, you know, the pushback. We're going to have to have the people uh, power, which means, you know, donating a dollar, ten dollars, what you can, but also people being willing to volunteer, to engage, you know, whether it's in social media, you know, we know that with COVID, we may not be able to be door knocking in October, November, but, you know, we can certainly engage in the phones, we can engage in social media, we're putting a very robust volunteer operation here, but if you're closer, if you're in the St. Louis area, if you're in the Baltimore area, you, you have great progressive district attorneys that need your help. Um, and, and I strongly encourage you because the other component to this is that criminal justice reform really needs to start with electing DAs that are going to do the right things, right? And if you consider that the district attorneys and the major urban centers in this country really are the ones that drive mass incarceration, are the ones that can drive uh, reform. Uh, obviously, LA is just the, this huge monster. You know, LA is bigger than than over 30 states. You know, with 10 and a half million people, so we drive the dialogue at rates that nobody else does. But you, uh, I strongly encourage you that this speaks to your heart, or if you know people that are in those areas there, uh, please donate. Please help those DAs. You can look. You can look at the website. Uh, you know, Senator Sanders. He actually listed all 10 of us. There's a lot of ways to engage here. It's great to go out there and, and uh, you know, engage in civil disobedience and exercise your First Amendment rights. But remember, at the end of the day, if you got a DA that is not going to follow through, uh, you can continue to do that until, you know, until hell freezes over. But you're not going to get much of an impact other than that. Uh, amen to that. Uh, thank you so much for doing the show. I hope everyone will check out your website. And just, you know, look, whether or not you can vote in L.A., get educated on these issues think about finding a more progressive DA to run where you live. Uh, but we have to focus locally first. So I, I'm so grateful for your time. Thank you so much for you guys. Thanks to George Gascon for joining us today. Uh, and we will talk to you later. Bye, everybody. Bye. 
Pod Save America is a product of Crooked Media. The executive producer is Michael Martinez. Our assistant producer is Jordan Waller. It's mixed and edited by Andrew Chadwick. Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Thanks to Tanya Sominator, Katie Long, Roman Papa Dimitriou, Caroline Reston, and Elisa Gutierrez for production support. And to our digital team, Elijah Cohn, Narmel Konian, Yale Freed, and Milo Kim, who film and upload these episodes as videos every week. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire.